This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. Also, uh, like reading that that part there about Montefiore, you noticed that uh, some Protestant figures were popping up, right? Yeah, in fact, I don't know if we want to talk about that yet. But well, that's, I think it might be time. The, might be time might be to time. read this amazing article by uh, Alexander Schulz, the same guy who wrote uh, Palestine and Transformation, called Britain and Palestine. It's covering the same period, 1838 to 1882, or I guess it's a slightly shorter period. The roots of the Balfour policy, which just like okay. really goes in and is, you know, really a fire article in my opinion. I'll try not to read this whole thing, which is like seven, well, maybe it's shorter than 70 pages, but you know, we'll I'll try to find the, the key parts, but uh, you know, it's just, it's it got like a Stavis Myers thing where it's all just like so good that you want to keep going. Um, yeah, yeah. In order to understand what happened in Palestine in the early 20th century, and more specifically how the Palestine conflict was imposed in the Near East, for this conflict did not arise in the region itself, was planted there from the outside. We must delve into the foundations of European policy in the quote-unquote Holy Land. These foundations were laid in the 19th century. Writing history can easily turn into a historiography of success, the story that is successful movements. In these cases, the history of the clever is dealt with more intensively than usual, and success takes on an appearance of inevitability. Yet up to the end of World War I, the exclusive control of the quote-unquote Holy Land, as Palestine was called until the establishment of the British Mandate by a single European power, seemed unthinkable. From the opening of the Holy Land to Europe's political and religious cultural penetration during the Egyptian domination of Syria and Palestine from 1831 to 1840, as we've just been talking about, mm -hmm. the European powers, and chiefly England, Russia, France, and Prussia, uh, parentheses Germany, all endeavored to build up and expand their presence in Palestine. They, thus they did, particularly through religious cultural means, including the protection of religious minorities, quote-unquote protection. Uh, towards this end, each energetically supported the philanthropical, cultural, and missionary activities of its own citizens. European interests in 19th century Palestine can be discussed on two levels, on the level of politics among the European governments and on the level of the non-governmental and social aspirations, trends, and movements in the context of which 19th century European policy on Palestine developed. Among the latter must be counted both the notion of a peaceful crusade, which was widespread in the continent, and traditional Christian and Jewish interests in Palestine, especially the English Chiliastic concept of the restoration of the Jews. Demands for European colonization of Palestine, often connected with the affirmation trends, were tied to efforts of European Jews even before the rise of Zionism. Like a we said, yeah. Yeah. 
A study of European interests in Palestine would thus show that the Zionist movement represented only one of many European movements during the 19th century that were dedicated to the reclamation and colonization of Palestine. The Zionist movement did not appear in its institutional form until relatively late in the game. Moreover, until British mandatory domination was established, it was by no means certain the Zionist movement would triumph over rival aspirations. The fact that it did triumph was not the result of the skill of Zionism's representatives or the magnanimity of the individual British politicians. Rather, it was the consequence of the constellation of World War I powers and a partial convergence of interests of British imperialism and the Zionist movement. The English Gentile Zionists of the 19th century, the forerunners of the nine Jewish supporters of Zionism, had carried out the ideological advance work for this convergence. Sorry, I'm going to blow my nose. Oof, I'm contested with, with anger at the Gentile Zionists. Okay. <laughs> the point of departure for all these developments was the opening of the Holy Land to Europe's political and religious cultural penetration, which began during the period from the end of the 1830s of the Crimean War. In 1831, Muhammad Ali, ruler of Egypt, sent his army, commanded by his son Ibrahim, against his sovereign, the Sultan in Constantinople. He conquered the entire geographical region of Syria, which included Palestine. To secure the goodwill of the European powers, especially England, in the face of his expansionist policies, Muhammad Ali did two things. First, he eliminated all forms of open discrimination against the members of non-Muslim religious communities in the areas he had conquered. As subjects of the new ruler, these people had the same rights as the majority even became to some degree privileged. Second, he facilitated political and religious cultural penetration by the Europeans by permitting them to open consulates in the interior and to expand and institutionalize religious missionary activities. This most important event in Palestine in connection was the establishment of a British consulate in Jerusalem in 1838. Because the Ottomans had to continue with Muhammad Ali's policy even after the Egyptians were expelled in 1840, Jerusalem witnessed the entrance of still other European consuls and religious dignitaries. As a result, the European public's interest in the quote-unquote Holy Land markedly increased. Thus, Palestine fell into that whirlpool of opposing European interests, the great power's eastern question of the 19th century. Once the Holy Land had come into view, inordinate desires were awakened, plans were devised, and visions were given free reign. None of these, however, was politically feasible, despite the fact that the Sultan would not have been able to drive the Egyptians out of Syria and Palestine without European, primarily British and Austrian, help. Given that the European intervention was undertaken for the sake of maintaining the integrity of the Ottoman Empire, Britain's Middle Eastern policy in particular had the conservation of the empire's core as an urgent goal, there could be no question of partitioning Ottoman territories. The problem, the 19th century's Eastern question, was how much of the Ottoman Empire had to be preserved and in what form in order to protect the interests of European powers. Since European penetration could not take the form of territorial control, then, it could only be a matter of influence. One of the most important vehicles through which the European powers tried to exercise their influence was the quote-unquote protection of non-Muslim minorities in the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. The establishment of the English presence and European cultural religious penetration. In England's view, Russia and France had taken the lead in the race to gain influence by means of quote-unquote protecting minorities. The former was the traditional quote-unquote protecting power of the Orthodox Christians, while the latter held the same position for the Catholic Christians. Both in Palestine and the Middle East generally, it was high time that this lead was narrowed. But as the heads of Europe's Protestant powers, as this is just exactly what you were mentioning, mm. England and Prussia first had to find, or more exactly create, their own protégés, Jews and Protestants. They recognized that just to set foot in Palestine and exercise any right to be involved, they would to some extent have to contest the quote-unquote natural strong points of Russia and France. This resulted in the appointment of a British consul uh, for Jerusalem in 1838. At the outset, he was supposed to form a counterweight to the feared expansion of Russian influence. 
Thus, the first step in a systematic European penetration of Palestine was made in the context of European rivalries concerning the quote-unquote Eastern question. This rivalry continued to be the most important factor in the period under consideration. But Protestantism still had no institutional base in the Holy Land from which it could compete with the religious institutions of the Orthodox and the Catholics. This base was created with the establishment of an Anglo-Prussian Episcopal See in Jerusalem in 1841 and the building of a Protestant quote-unquote cathedral, Christ Church, dedicated in 1849. That's I love the, that he puts yeah. it in quotes, like, quote, yeah. cathedral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways. The installation of a Protestant bishop resulted from the activities of British missionary societies, primarily the Church Missionary Society, founded in 1799, and the London Society of Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews, founded in 1809, as well as from the political interests of the British government and the Prussian church policies carried out under Friedrich Wilhelm IV. In England, the idea of a Protestant episcopate in Palestine was not new. It had been especially promoted by the influential Earl of Shaftesbury. Hence, an understanding with Prussia quickly materialized, particularly since the Anglican Church had greater influence. The bishops would be appointed alternately by the English and Prussian crowns, but would always be ordained by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Both Prussia and England would contribute equal shares for their support. The choice of the first bishop, the converted Jew, Michael Solomon Alexander, was influenced by the goal of creating a nucleus around which the Protestant community could crystallize. Another determining factor was the restoration of the Jews, quote-unquote, the conversion of the Jews, which was supposed to receive a decisive impulse from Jerusalem. Before the appointment of a consul, the missionaries of the London Society for Promoting Christianity amongst the Jews had been the most important British representatives in the Holy Land. The chief task of Bishop Alexander was therefore supposed to be the conversion of Jews. He still had to create a Protestant congregation out of converted Jews. It was also the representative of the above-named London Society who, without the permission of the authorities, had already begun in 1839 to build a Protestant church. It was not until 1845 that the Sultan's Furman conclusively granted approval for this. Christ Church was finally dedicated in 1849. The rate of conversion of the Jews was, to be sure, minimal. Their resistance seemed insurmountable. For this reason, Alexander's successor, Samuel Gobat, who in accordance with the turn-taking agreement was appointed by Prussia and sent to Jerusalem in 1849, set this original goal aside. He directed his missionary zeal primarily toward the native Orthodox Christians. In, in conjunction with this shift in the political line and the proselytizing activities of the Episcopate, the Jews of Palestine were placed under the amplified political protection of England. Young, the first British consul, had been directed in 1839 to attend to the general protection of the Jews as an important part of his official duties. When his successor, Finn, entered government service there in the spring of 1846, he, was, he also was enjoined to carry out this task. He was supposed to take all Jews under his wing, whether they were British subjects or not. Young wrote in, 1839, in the 18, in 1839 report that two groups would doubtless demand a strong voice in the future concerns of Palestine. The first were the Jews, to whom God had originally given ownership of this land. The second were the Protestant Christians, the legitimate successors uh, to the Jews. Great Britain would be the natural protector of both groups, which henceforth would form a common front to realize their aspirations for Palestine. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm going to see. We can, you know, not read all 18 pages of it, although I do recommend uh, that this happen. It's really good. I mean, this is, I think he, re a lot of this is in his book, but this is yeah. like a nice summary, basically, yeah, of the points Britain. that he's making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Young, Young was the consul, I think, I, was, I had to go back and check, uh, who told Montefiore to, like, not arouse Muhammad Ali's suspicions and <laughs> asking for all this land. So, you know, you could see the British are really, like, playing games already, like, in the 1830s. Oh. Um, 
I keep forgetting to mention this. Like I keep thinking, oh, I, sh I forgot to mention this, and but uh, and it's a digression at this point. But um, related way back earlier in the episode to uh, that anecdote about the the placard incident, uh, you know, with the sort of like fake uh, placards suggesting the British remedy uh, in Out of Anatolia. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, a funny or like a, an interesting uh, anecdote uh, about that is that uh, afterwards, you know, like in uh, when this happened, I think, you know, even amidst the Hamidian uh, massacres, there was, you know, the uh, Theodore Herzl, you know, one of the mm -hmm. most prominent uh, European Zionists was, you know, in contact with the Sultan trying to arrange with Abdul Hamid trying to arrange kind of uh a uh you know like a deal for them to get you know land or a uh, sort of jewish national home in, in palestine right so he was talking and he uh sultan abdul Hamid was like you should use your influence in the press in the you know european press to you know tamp down this like uh, you know armenian uh issue mm -hmm. so yeah I'm trying, uh, there's a quote i have uh right here yeah analogous considerations buttressed by his own futuristic narrative inspired uh, Theodore Herzl's enthusiastic response, analogous to, you know, someone wrote in the article, but futuristic narratives inspired Theodore Herzl's enthusiastic response, uh, parentheses, excellent, to an overture in 1896 by an agent of Abdul Hamid suggesting that he marshal, quote-unquote, Jewish power on the Sultan's behalf, especially in the Armenian matter. In a year when European sympathy for the Armenians was at its height and pressure on the Ottoman Padishah was intense, Herzl used all his contacts as Zionist leader and newspaperman to turn the tide. He began at the top with a scheme to persuade Lord Salisbury to compel the Armenians to accept a reconciliation with the Sultan on the latter's terms. As an Austrian, he also tried to influence his own foreign minister. A second prong of his attack was an approach to Armenian exile leaders, whom he hoped to shepherd back into the pen. <laughs> an Armenian insurrection was rumored for July, and the Sultan wanted Herzl to get them to, quote, submit without condition, after which he would spontaneously grant all the reforms he deemed, quote, possible. Herzl sent a secret emissary to meet with an Armenian committees in Paris, Brussels, and London. He personally sought out the founder of the revolutionary uh, Hintshaks in London and conferred with a Tbilisi Armenian leader in Vienna. A permanent peace was not part of the agenda. Herzl was acutely conscious that his leverage with the Sultan would evaporate once Armenians ceased to be a threat, while Abdul Hamid himself wanted an armistice only to buy time to marshal his forces. All was very hugger-mugger. Uh, under no circumstances are the Armenians to learn that we want to use them in order to erect a Jewish state. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. That's I sus. mean, this guy sucked. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Herzl know. sucks. Yeah. 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 Um, Jeez. Yes, but uh, returning to this... Cynical uh, games. Yes, very cynical. Uh, unbelievably so. But yeah, uh, returning to uh, this Scholz uh, article. So, uh, well, but unfortunately, like I have, like you, so many tabs open that now. Are you just going to keep reading from... I have it right here. Yeah, I think... Um, I'm, oh, I mean, yeah, you can take... If you want to read that part, I was thinking we might skip down but i mean we can't read the whole thing i mean i guess you know i don't think that he would mind but i um, think um let's kind of i'll start right here um yeah, go ahead. so yeah so in 1850 the protestants were recognized as an official religious community in the ottoman empire and thus a secure basis for the exercise of the protecting function was in place um a protestant episcopacy had been founded in cooperation with prussia 
Jerusalem had an evangelical, again in quotes, cathedral. <laughs> and in, I don't know why he does that, but it's funny. And England had assumed the protection of all the Jews in Palestine, especially those who desired it. All the hopes and strivings of a political nature that turned on this, however, were doomed to remain the stuff of dreams. Throughout Europe, projects and demands for, quote, taking possession or controlling Palestine surfaced during the, quote, Eastern crises of the 1830s and beginning of the 1840s, especially in connection with the European power's support of the Sultan during the expulsion of the Egyptians from Syria. In 1841, for example, a call was issued from English missionary circles not to waste this golden opportunity offered by the retreat of the Egyptians when the fate of the territories belonging to the, quote, disorganized empire of the Turks would be decided. The circular demanded that Europe ask the port to unify Palestine with Christendom so that it could be transformed into an independent, self-governing Christian territory under the auspices of the Christian sovereigns of Europe and Asia. A sovereign should be installed who would be agreeable to all the Christian nations and whose kingly authority they would fully recognize. The sultan would doubtless agree to this, the circular (laughs) added, since this Christian kingdom would be a protective barrier against the expansionist efforts of the ruler of Egypt. Wow. This, quote, opportunity slipped by (laughs) unexploited. Okay, and while European politics in the Near East acquired a new quality at the beginning of the 1850s through the forced economic penetration of the country, cultural religious penetration of the, quote, Holy Land continued to be more important in European policies there. Certainly, the cultural religious zeal, which accelerated after 1856, was amalgamated with political claims and demands for a, quote, requ- for a, quote reconquest, that is, colonization. These aspects of the thinking on the future of the Holy Land carried even more weight at the end of the 1870s and the beginning of the 1880s after Europe had intervened in the region directly and after the Schwabian Templars had succeeded in maintaining for some time their colonization enterprise established in 1868. Territorial claims were asserted and hypothetical spheres of interest were marked off. But as long as the existence of the Ottoman Empire was not fundamentally called into question by the great powers, demands of this kind could not be realized, neither in the phase after the Crimean War, nor in the years after the British occupation of Egypt in 1882. Thus, even when England's policy toward the Ottoman Empire changed in the late 19th century, England had to rest content with its role as a special protecting power for the Protestants and the Jews, and with the promotion of its trade. Likewise, France had to be satisfied with the energetic promotion of Catholic interests in Jerusalem within the framework of its claim to a religious protectorate over all Catholics in the Middle East and within the context of its Syria policy. Russia, whose primary interest was focused on Constantinople and the Straits, pursued its policy, more defensive than assertive, of preserving the Orthodox presence and resources in Palestine. Finally, Germany limited itself to forging commercial links and to building up its presence through Christian charitable works. Even the, quote, German settlements in the Holy Land were not allowed to endanger the development of ties with Constantinople, especially after the 1880s. Indeed, in a certain sense, the German Empire even took over England's position as the, princi- as the principal guardian of the integrity of the Ottoman Empire. This constellation was only broken by the Zionist movement, which sought one of the great powers as a partner, and by the possibilities that World War I opened up in this regard. 
It was thus that from the outbreak of the Crimean War up until World War I, the Western European consuls in Palestine had been instructed to discontinue anything at their post that might harm efforts to, quote, regenerate the Ottoman Empire and undermine its integrity. But at the same time, the European powers were loudly and frequently calling for a, quote, peaceful crusade, this effective takeover of the Holy Land. The large Mediterranean shipping companies now called at the Palestinian ports regularly and brought crowds of pilgrims and travelers into the country. During the holiday seasons, there seemed to be more pilgrims crowding the streets of Jerusalem than their residents in the city. Religious and biblical archaeological interest in the Holy Land was supported by national associations that had confessional, scientific, and political orientations, and in some cases, publishing houses. Missionaries, pilgrims, and, quote, Palestine explorers produced a mass of literature that could not be overlooked. In the second half of the 19th century, Europeans could get more detailed information about Palestine than they could get about any other non-European area. The European public was more convinced that they had, quote, rights of ownership in Palestine than in any other non-European territory. In the climate in which Europe's Palestine politics developed, the non-governmental efforts, movements, and demands functioned both as a stimulus and as ideological legitimization. Only to a limited extent were these aspirations in Palestine, quote, peaceful. Indeed, during the, quote, Eastern crisis of the 19th century, they often turned into aggressive demands for European occupation and rule of Palestine. Damn. Yeah. So really good uh, summary of all the geopolitical games and like dialectical tensions at play that were sort of, yeah, knocking at the door of Palestine throughout like the mid to late 19th century and the use of... Uh, yeah, yeah religious cool. cultural penetration, which As he, uh, is a great yeah, way of terming it, I think. And the well, the quote, I like how he always puts protection in quotes, like of minorities, <laughs> as like a huge like rhetorical and practical like wedge that was like used as part of this process. This next yep. section, uh, which is quote the rest also in of the quotes, Jews. yeah, <laughs> is in quotes right. Is uh, well, this is like you know what they would, but this is a, a great section. It was in the 1840s that England's quote gentile zionists broke into everyday politics with their notion of quote the restoration of the jews such notions were worked out at the level of foreign policy in 1840 palmerston under the influence of ward shaftesbury tried to win the sultan over to the idea of a return of the jews arguing that they should be encouraged to settle in palestine on the one hand the sultan and the empire would profit from the riches that a great number of wealthy capitalists would give to palestine it's a direct the, direct quote quote yeah. a great number of wealthy capitalists yeah uh, yeah on the other hand the jews there would form a barrier against any future ambitions of muhammad ali during the 1840s many british journalists clerics politicians colonial officials and officers were more direct they demanded in one form or another jewish colonies or even a jewish state under british protection to fulfill the goal of the restoration of the jews and to protect the british strategic and commercial interests in the region equally pressing demands for direct occupation or control of palestine by england were made later on first during the crisis years around 1880 and then during world war one the chiliastic concept of the restoration of the Jews was rooted in Britain's intellectual history. Developed by Anglican messianism and evangelicalism, 
the uh, or sorry, evangelism. The doctrine had already been completely worked out by the beginning of the 19th century. Hardly a single new thought was added to it in the voluminous literature during the following hundred years. Arguing, uh, sorry, according to this doctrine, the fulfillment of the prophecies about the last day was invisibly linked to the return of the Jews to the land of their fathers, to which they had an inalienable right. Their physical and religious restoration, that is, the end of the diaspora, their gathering in Palestine, and their acceptance of the Christian gospel, was conceived as an essential component of the divine plan for human redemption and as a prerequisite of the advent of the kingdom of Christ. The question often was raised of whether the conversion of the Jews must take place before their restoration or whether it could only occur in Palestine. Interpretations of the signs of the times, which proclaimed the restoration and with it the advent of the last days, led again to correctable errors. In the 18th and 19th centuries, evidence of a collapse of papal and Islamic power, i.e. Ottoman power, was interpreted as such a sign. Of necessity, one's conclusion about which nation or ruler will be singled out to be the tool of divine providence and take charge of the restoration, quote-unquote, varied depending on the power constellation. When Napoleon landed in Egypt and even marched toward Palestine, he appeared to have been chosen to carry out God's will. But in subsequent years, the true doctrine sorted itself out from such errors more clearly in the eyes of its champions. They saw this role had gone to England. These notions had a broader impact when they were reinforced by the evangelical revivalist movement of the 19th century. Every quote-unquote Eastern crisis at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century at the end of the 1830s and the beginning of the 1840s, during the Crimean War, and at the end of the 1870s and the beginning of the 1880s, triggered a wave of these kinds of chiliastic sermons, pamphlets, books, projects, and political demands. The conclusions that people drew from such quote-unquote fundamental knowledge varied with each crisis. In other words, they were tailored to suit the realities and exigencies of day-to-day -day politics. Britons rejoice, said a pamphlet during the Crimean War. It will fall to you to lead the long-dispersed members of the neglected race of Judah back to their beautiful land and by planting in their homeland a colony, whose bond to its protector cannot be doubted, put another <laughs> obstacle on the path of the menacing intruder, i.e. Russia. <laughs> that the conversion Britain's of the Jews yeah that the conversion of the Jews to Christianity represented a truth that had already been predicted under divine inspiration by the prophets was self-evident and hardly had to be emphasized again. But the conversion need not take place before the return to the quote-unquote Holy Land. One author who lived in Palestine during those years was less enthusiastic. Where is the statesman, he asked skeptically, who could bring about the rebirth of the Jewish nation, the establishment of a regenerated kingdom, quote, regenerated kingdom supported by Christian swords and scepters against the now rightful possessors of an inheritance once so hallowed, supported, indeed, against itself, while the impurities which causes destruction remain unchanged? He consoled himself, however, with the thought that this would occur through an open manifestation of created power, sorry, creative power at the decreed time. The Ottoman bankruptcy of 1875 and the year-long crisis that resulted from it brought forth still more signs of the times. Uh, quote, all Christians should rejoice at the decline of the Ottoman Empire, quote, preached Hor. Quote, because the ruin of the Muslims is the hope of the Jews, and the return of the Jews will be the blissful herald of the triumphant advent of the glorious kingdom of Jerusalem. Palestine will be freed from the blight of Turkish uh, misgovernment and its lawful owners, the descendants of Abraham, the nation to whom God gave it, will thus become a country once again in which milk and honey flow. But it would be a very poor blessing to the children of Israel if they were restored to their home but not brought back to God. The conversion would not happen, however, until after the return. 
Mm-hmm. James Neal, who had lived in Palestine from 1871 to 1874, confirmed that, quote, the signs of the times did indeed point to the impending, quote, restoration. He cited in particular the growth of the Jewish population of the country resulting from the increasing number of, quote, unquote, returning Jews. But at the same time, he also warned against short-term expectations, especially since the papacy and the Greek church that settled in Palestine on a massive scale would not give ground so quickly. Naturally, the doctrine of the quote-unquote restoration of the Jews did not become a general conviction for the population of Great Britain. But the authoritative assertion that Palestine was truly the God-given home of the Jews, to which they sooner or later would return, gained wide currency. In this restricted sense, the idea of the quote restoration became a commonplace bit of knowledge. Like a self-evident fact that one mentioned only to confirm, it permeated the English literature on Palestine in the second half of the 19th century. In association with the peaceful crusade that was being preached in the continent, appeals were even made for a crusade that would pave the way for the Jews. This is a great quote. If persuasive eloquence was my particular gift, wrote Walker after a sojourn in Palestine, I would preach throughout Christendom a new crusade of the plow and the pruning hook for the obliteration from the sacred soil of Palestine of every trace of the grass-destroying hoofprints of the Moslem spoiler. (laughs) These miserable, ignorant, half-wild Arabs with their dirty villages and wretched hovels cannot be the fit successors and rightful heirs of the millions of intelligent, refined, highly civilized, and well-governed subjects whom David and Solomon ruled over in the days of Israel's glory. If one were to preach a violent crusade to rescue Palestine from the unbelievers, one would hope that it would be possible to get better results in those produced by the Holy War of the Middle Ages. But those times were gone, and one could no longer have recourse to these means since, quote, it has become a recognized duty of powerful and prosperous nations to interfere for the protection of oppressed peoples and the better ordering of ill-governed lands, both by diplomatic means and through, quote, extra diplomatic pressure. More than that would be necessary in the case of Palestine. Nothing more than what the public opinion of the Christian world would sanction. Only the Jews had a legitimate right to Palestine, however. Whoever created order there would have to do this in order to prepare it for the reoccupancy of its rightful owners. The task of the quote-unquote organizing power would be fulfilled as soon as the Jews were ready, as a nation, to take over their country themselves. Until then, one could only prepare them for the responsibilities of an independent national existence. Reflections of this kind were radically formulated. The link between the crusade motif and the concepts of quote-unquote restoration was not an everyday commonplace thing. But in light of the Balfour Declaration and the Mandate, one cannot dismiss them as absurdities. Toward the yeah, end of yikes. the... Eight, yeah, uh, it's truly yikes. insane. But, you know, this is... Yeah, he has a couple more paragraphs here on this. Uh, Towards the end of the 1870s, the idea of quote-unquote restoration was joined even more strongly with imperialist tendencies and was linked with all kinds of projects. Edward Cazalet, the British industrialist, called for the establishment of a British protectorate over Palestine in 1878-79 to with the goal of leading the Jews back to Palestine and creating a lasting bond between the country and England. Charles Warren, one of the well-known activists of the Palestine Exploration Fund in the face of the Ottoman bankruptcy, proposed that the Holy Land be placed under the supervision of a company modeled after the East India Company for 20 years. (laughs) The company would guarantee to pay the government in Constantinople a sum equivalent to the current tax income of Palestine and would pay the government's creditors a portion of the interest that was due. The company's task would be to settle Jews in the country step by step so that Palestine would ultimately come under their ownership and control. Certainly, the, the... uh, I'm just flashing back to people being like, there's that, no colonialism involved here. No colonialism Like, literally, involved. yeah, I was just thinking, yeah. like, so when people say, like, use the word colonialism, this is basically, <laughs> it should be pretty obvious, like, 
this is uh this isn't even what people were referring to, but this also happened like before, you know. Yeah. Even the twentieth century. Yeah. My God. It's like I, I could see like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel doing something like like Elon Musk would like offer to buy a country, basically. Yeah. You know, and like pay off all the debt or some shit and then do to it what he did to X. Um <laughs> Um, Real sicko yeah, shit. And again, CV for Elon Musk, etc. Yeah, <laughs> this uh, this next sentence is really brutal. So certainly the question might arise: What would happen to the Arabs of Palestine? Warren said, "I ask in turn, who are the Arabs?" This was his entire contribution to the solution of this problem. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, th- that's even a step further than like they didn't have you know the deed to the land. It's like who even are I never heard of them. Like what? Like who? Yeah. Who, who are like, the Arabs? Yeah. Jesus. It's like a Gary Johnson thing of like, and what is Aleppo? Aleppo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like literally what is Aleppo on never massive geopolitical it. scale. Yeah. yeah um, never heard of them. And these are the last couple. Condor, the popular director of the survey of Western Palestine, knew of something, at least, that could be done with the inhabitants of the country. In his view, no one was better suited to take charge of the regeneration of Palestine and instruct its present population and discipline of agriculture. Well, I'm, I'm really seeing some resonances of the pinchback thing. Teach them agriculture. Then as rightful owners, the Jews, who were energetic, industrious, and tactful by nature. To be sure, the native peasants were, quote, terribly ignorant, fanatic, and above all, inveterate liars. But they also had qualities that, if developed, would make a useful population out of them. Useful, that is, for the owners of the country. Once stripped of its chili, yeah. Once stripped of its chili, like that. What what is great about this is like how many like depraved quotes he collects. Um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah this guy, he's cooking. There's definitely some more in Palestine transformation, but once stripped of its chiliastic wrappings, the doctrine of the inalienable right to, of Jews to Palestine, their restoration, the role that Britain thereby acquired, became a commonplace in the English literature on Palestine. It was an essential component of the British understanding of Palestine. Increasingly, the image of the conversion of the Jews to Christianity was lost. Uh, yeah, just like totally dropped. At the onset of World War I, the doctrine was still effective in this form. The fascination of the concept in its secularized form, as it were, was mixed with the political considerations of war and the imperial strategy that gave birth to the Balfour Declaration in 1917. When Balfour expressed his conviction in 1919 that Zionism was of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of prejudices not like wanting to be displaced from your home and ethnically cleansed um yeah yeah so yeah a far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 70 uh sorry 700,000 arabs who now inhabit the ancient land uh he was doubtless expressing the innermost thoughts of the majority of the english population the goal of the quote restoration of the jews had imperceptibly been equated with the goals of zionism in the context of imperialist policy the restorationists identified themselves with the zionists well yep they did god now this guy uh, the, the i think I highly recommend anybody reading uh this guy's entire book this guy is german right west german Schulsch. i'm not sure yeah i guess so Schulch, uh, i guess yeah. it would be i think i think he is but he's spitting uh doing a lot better than his his country's government right now the next section is colonization projects. Yeah, the, quote, need for colonization in order to, quote, improve the country became a fundamental element in the European understanding of Palestine. Yeah, they talk about Christian increasing Christian emigration, quote, Catholic colonies. Yeah. There was, a, there was kind of a, you know, a concurrent Catholic interest mostly expressed through France 
that also was uh, I think like the the Knights of the Order of the Sepulchre. Yeah, were, weren't they reestablished back yes, in the, crazy. the late eighteen yeah. hundreds? Uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so there was also like that kind of penetration. Oh yeah, this is also interesting. I didn't know about this um, with the Red Cross, who I feel like we often just have like a pretty neutral or positive association unless you're the IDF, of course, because they're lying and they're Al Hamas people. But, you know, like generally speaking, the Red Cross is like, oh, yeah. So he notes here that uh, Henry Dunant, uh, the founder of the Red Cross, called for the founding of an international society for the renewal of the Orient in 1866. Its primary goal would be the mass colonization of Palestine under the protectorate of Napoleon III. (laughs) So like, oh, okay, all right, that's not very like... Uh, cuddly medical NGO. Anyways, the undertaking would nevertheless have an international character and would lead to the neutralization of Palestine. As part of the project, particular thought would be devoted to settlement by Jews, a task which the Jewish financial magnates of Europe should assume. And like, to some extent they did. Perhaps the French emperor could later think about whether to take over the ultimate sovereignty of, quote, a small Hebrew state in Palestine, which, although under European protection, would be dependent on France. The Jews could carry on the civilizing mission of France and England and Asia. The most important outcome of the European colonization of Palestine would be the liberation of the Holy Land from the yoke of the Turks, the peaceful termination of the rule of Islam. These ideas and the international society that would arise from them preoccupied the Europeans who were were interested in Palestine until the mid-1870s. However, no tangible results were achieved. A specifically Catholic colonization project brought to life in 1876 in France, in which the well-known architect and writer about Palestine, Pierotti, uh, received the blessing of Pope Pius IX, was also no great success. The goal of the project was to establish Catholic colonies in the Holy Land and promote Catholic uh, pilgrimages. Oh, interesting. Shortly before the founding of the first Templar colony near, near Haifa, the Viennese geographer Kuhlmann, who previously had spent two years exploring the terrain in the Middle East, urged the Teutonic colonization of Palestine on the basis of a chauvinistic racist sense of Teutonic mission, which viewed the entire Middle East as as its field of action. His project was no more distinguished by a seductive logic than that of Dinant. On the one hand, Kuhlmann depicted for his readers a Palestine that was, to a great extent, empty of people. On the other hand, he warned that the immigrants could not establish themselves one by one, but must be settled, quote, always in large bands, with at least a thousand men able to bear arms, so that they could hold their own against the Muslim population. In Zionist literature, it is especially the colonization project of Oliphant, a Scottish diplomat, political activist, and Christian mystic that is described as, quote, proto-Zionist. On the eve of the first wave of Jewish immigration, with the support of the British government, Oliphant was pursuing the plan for a Jewish colony in the Balka, on the other side of the Jordan. However, his endeavors ran afoul of Constantinople. Huh. Yeah. I mean, so a lot there, but I mean, like, also, yeah, the founder of the Red Cross, like, damn. You, you don't always think about these organizations that have been around for, like, so long. Um, yeah. I don't know. Is the Red Crescent, like, a separate organization that operates in Muslim countries? I, or are they, like, an offshoot? I thought they were... The same thing. Yeah, the Organized International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. So I think they're like the same thing. Yeah, but interesting. Yeah, Yeah, just like who knew that, you know, yeah, it's like you 
but what could be the downside it's yeah. like a guy just wants to like bring doctors to like places and help people but it's like he also i wonder to what extent he wanted to like use the red cross as an instrument of like cultural <laughs> penetration i mean you know and actually did use like it the, it kind of like, mirrors like the original templars too you know like they were started as like hospitalier hospitalier yeah. that's right yeah, and then so. it's when the catholic church brings back you know but the catholics and the protestants you know they, there's the templar society which yeah. is protestant mm-hmm. and then uh and i guess has like an extremely racist teutonic element <laughs> to it um and then you have kind of the, the peaceful crusade catholics also and like reviving certain kind of a, a not the not the knights templar themselves they're still canceled but other kind of like associated orders and pouring a lot of money into a also all these groups are putting all these christian groups are putting huge money into like schools and things like that right yeah and trying to some extent either to like to convert some of the population or like just get their their footprint you know make their footprint as big as possible okay and lots of psychos in europe are like just frothing at the mouth for like how they can ethnically cleanse uh yes. palestine uh yeah. I mean, they're just not like shy about saying it in the no they're century. not that's the thing like they openly admit it like proudly like like there's none of this like you know sort of like mealy mouth shit that you hear nowadays even though they obviously i mean Israel kind of has gone mask off, especially recently. But you but know, no, I'll still hear people say that, like you know, col- colonialism. Come on, like yeah, true. You know, no, that, will, that's like, not or you know, occupation. What, yeah, oh, like apartheid. No. Meanwhile, oh, yeah, apartheid like, definitely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this idea that it's like it's not a product of Western colonialism. It's like just some people who went back to their land. And yeah. after a terrible thing happened in them in Europe, and it's like, well, there was like a hundred year like head start of like a running head start to like yeah, establish this. Like the idea was not; it didn't just pop into people's heads even in like the 1930s or something like that. Like no. as a reaction, it often gets framed today as almost solely a almost spontaneous like reaction to Nazism and what. And that's the true it does what yeah like they needed somewhere to go after the holocaust it's like no they they wanted this as like a wedge like a geopolitical wedge before that like long long before that they were oh desperate yeah yeah for it. everyone was fighting over it <laughs> you know fight- like- i mean it and it was it was that was obviously was a decisive catalyzing event that sort of ended up precipitating the formation of israel but yes. like that so much was happening before and, I mean, the the contestation over this you know uh place and it and it was I think uh, Shulk uh, makes this point at the beginning of his book that, like, his point in kind of laying out all these different things is basically to show, to demonstrate how history is much more of a dynamic, like, jump ball kind of situation. And the establishment of, like, the state of Israel and the success of Zionism was not just from kind of automatic historical inevitability that was, like, or, you know, destiny also, or fulfillment of prophecy but even in the secular sense that there's there's almost in like secular supporters of zionism Mm -hmm. that it was like just fated to happen like and it's like well no there were a lot of people and forces at work that wanted to make it happen in and as we see precisely in kind of almost the worst faith reading interpretation of like what they ended up doing which is like ethnically cleanse the entire territory of kind of the the Arab inhabitants that are already there because they're not 
it's like they're not they're literally kind of dehumanized like they're not people they're not there who who are the arabs like yeah eh? like i don't see any arabs like like it's 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 like gaslighty it's weird and zionism also i think we see up to this exact day would not probably have succeeded without like extremely heavy European and later American backing. Oh no, it was 100% like every precipitated by the British mandate and they were the what their goal was was to like transition into a Jewish state. Like that's what they 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 wanted to favor that outcome and like do what they could to support it. Like that's who they wanted to pass the baton to. Yeah, as as far back as like the 1850s and 1860s, the yeah. the people were t- kind of talking about this, and specifically the Christians. You know, like yeah. all the Christians really, but especially the I'd say mostly the Protestants, to a slightly lesser extent the Catholics, and like slight, maybe slightly lesser extent the Russian like the Orthodox uh, churches. Well, well, they were kind of like, it was like inverse to how deeply rooted they were already, yeah, you know, like exactly. the most extreme people so obsessed with this. Yeah. The, that was the, what, the, that's what like the, the Ottomans and everyone was paranoid about like before, but in a way they're like the fact that they had a foothold, you know, England and Germany, they like, you know, they were reacting to that and they like went all in, you know, they had a lot to like, prove. They're like what, when the Slavic neo-pagans like don't have written history to, like fall back on and they go crazy and make up a bunch of shit about uh, Makash, you know? Yes. Like exactly. the Protestants are kind of being like that. And, and they, they had their eyes on this, you know, this place. And of course, yeah, like the symbolic power of kind of having it for the various Imperial projects was and remains pretty immense, but, the, but they have this zero sum idea of like, they're already formulating the rhetorical justifications for why, you know, we should, encourage because it's interesting i mean this is also a period where there is a lot of anti-semitism in europe and you know perhaps i think it it's a little bit like when americans were like american quote-unquote like reformers were like we should send like all the african-americans like back to liberia yeah like they belong there it's like kind of like patronizing and also (laughs) like covering for a lot of racism of like yes we want to kick you out we're like we're made nervous by having too many africans here etc it's a li- i'm sure there's like some elements of that going on but especially with some of these like christian preachers you know and religious figures it's not what would later happen under like the nazis where they really are thinking about like kicking everybody like forcing everybody to leave but it's about kind of like spreading via sort of capital like the development of like economic things like incentivizing people to move there and mm-hmm. it sounds like especially like in the early period, more of the, the the surplus of poor European Jews, they sort of want them to like offload them to like go down to Palestine, you know, yeah. but it's not it's not about like a forced removal of them yet. Like that doesn't seem to really happen till much later in like the Nazi period where. You know, yeah, it dovetails well actually with the Nabil Matar article. But I did, I did want to point out this like next paragraph because I think this is, you know, this has some other good like psycho shit in here uh, from the German side. You know, it was not true that when pursuing such proposals, the colonization enthusiasts simply did not perceive the problem of the existence of a native population, whereas Coleman proposed a military solution, plain and simple. Oliphant wanted these elements of the Transjordan population who did not give up a nomadic way of life to be put in reservations like the Indians of North America. 
as far as okay yeah yeah Yeah. and this is very daniel pinchback as far as the sedentary agriculturalists were concerned they would make a valuable labor force which could be employed by immigrant capitalists quote uh, he also clearly revealed his mindset when he reported that, with regard to the fertile Hula Plains, he wished to imitate the example of the men of Dan. In earlier times, they had driven out the peasants living there. One had to do this in a, quote, modern way, however. A joint stock company could be founded. The owners of the land could be com- compensated and retained as laborers. And a profitable business in the Hula region could be set up. Literally, exactly. Well, that's what happened. And, yeah, and, and yeah, all, like, yeah, like just throw uh, some MDMA and some buzzwords yeah. in there, and that's pretty much like you can visit your ancestral home like once a year. Yeah, it'll you, be you, you guys like pilgrimages, right? State of the art joint stock green city. <laughs> you know, it's like, you'll get right. uh, NFTs of like the dome yeah. of the rock, like <laughs> of <laughs> <Yeah>. of the <laughs> like, You can have an NFT yeah. of Aloxa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, it's hitting a little uh, too close to what literally ended up happening. Yes, he does. He notes here that uh, Condor, uh, I forget, was he one of the uh, the consular officials? He believed that one could make use of the native population and turn them into quote hewers of wood and drawers of water. In 1872, his colleague uh, Tierwit Drake of the Palestine Exploration Fund. This sounds like a sus organization, the Palestine Exploration Fund. Oh, yeah, Fund. definitely. Uh, yeah. He wrote bluntly, quote, I can only say that it would, be, it would be a most splendid thing if the Ottoman government could overcome its aversion to selling land to foreigners. With the right guarantees, a great portion of this land, Palestine, would find a favorable market, and then the peasants now there would either be cleared away or transformed into useful members of society, while the increased income of the Turkish government would be very considerable. Uh, okay, psycho. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, so just the naked colonialism. Like, uh, yeah, like, fuck, the, like, maybe some of these people are useful to us. A little dangerously close to, like, what would later be termed, uh, like, the Lebensraum policy. Yeah. I mean, if, I'd, you know, if we're talking about how these English people are talking, it's like, yeah, well. They like, sound the, uh, unbelievably the same. Like, like, you know, just it's so casual. Them. They'll be happy to go somewhere else. You know? Yeah. It's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. In comparison with that statement, the conclusion reached in 1882 by the director of the Templar Society, Hoffmann, could actually be described as refreshing. Quote, the Arabs certainly cannot be driven out. for They are the overwhelming majority and the rightful owners of the land. What is more, they are not defenseless. The militarily well-organized force of the Turks would be able to frustrate any act of violence against the indigenous inhabitants. For European colonists, the protection of European power would be indispensable. So even you have one of the, the German colonists, like, pretty much admitting that, yeah, like, kind of considers them the rightful owners of the land. Uh, they can't be driven out. But there's that caveat in there. You know, without somebody backing us up, there's no way we could basically displace them. So we all know how it ended up happening. Like up to this day, yeah, like it, th- this project uh, wouldn't have been possible without sort of like massive military aid.
to, uh, you know, get in a little bit into this in the Bill uh, Matar article. I was very impressed with this article because I had read previously some of his other scholarship. I, but, I mean, I, I won't knock it too hard. Um, but, Which one I is mean, this? Uh, it's uh, Protestantism, Palestine, and Partisan Scholarship. I thought this article was interesting because this got into something that I kind of brought up earlier during a Q&A where he's sort of talking about, like, the, you know, much earlier kind of precedence of this idea of Jewish uh, restoration and how nowadays this is, and this is kind of taken up in that book Dix, uh, uh, between Dixie and Zion as well, where nowadays book, it's considered yeah. to be like a bedrock of evangelical Protestantism or like it is just simply the facts that the Bible says like that everything that's happening in Israel is going to happen and you know like stuff like this is just basically the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy that has to be read in this way and like always has been and like everyone has always believed in this you know and in, in this exact way and if you don't agree with it like if you don't want it to happen you're anti-semitic or whatever you know where yeah, millenarian dispensationalism right? yes it's generally and what it's called. yeah and this article makes the point that like actually like this was not always the mainstream like protestant opinion um, and uh, it, there's actually like a lot of uh, sort of a nuance there, um, you know, and he really goes on on the people who have promoted this idea. Um, so uh, a partisan scholarship has developed since the early 20th century to demonstrate that the British Protestant culture supports the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. Both before and after the Balfour Declaration of 1917, scholars pointed to the extent of references in British thought from the Reformation through the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries which reported to deal with a Jewish, quote, restoration to Palestine. After the creation of the Jewish state in 1948, and again after the 1967 war, historians hastened to associate those writings of the English and Scottish divines with the Israeli occupation of Jerusalem. All agreed that since the 16th century, British Protestantism had unwaveringly supported a Jewish state and that the vast literature on restoration was proof of the inevitability of Jewish complete occupation of Palestine. It is true that from the 16th century, there began to appear in England and Scotland and later in France, Holland, Germany, and New England, writings that called for the restoration of the Jews to Palestine, the eradication of the native Christian and Muslim inhabitants, and the second coming of the Messiah. There were various theologians and poets, lunatics, and quote-unquote prophets, soldiers and scientists who wrote in support of restoration and who were subsequently cited by 20th century historians bent on supporting Zionist claims to Palestine. Indeed, from the turn of this century, writers such as Nahum Sokolow, Albert Hyamson, James Parks, Barbara Tuchman, and others have quoted the writings of the restorationists in order to impress upon their readers the historical legitimacy of a Zionist presence in Palestine. Deliberately, however, these propagandists have completely suppressed the writings of the anti-restorationists, who, from the 17th century on, wrote vigorously against the Jewish kingdom in Palestine. Although those anti-restorationists include biblical scholars and literary figures like Hugh Broughton, Henry Hammond, Joseph Hall, Richard Baxter, Thomas Fuller, John Milton, John Lightfoot, Henry Danvers, and Peter Alex, they have been ignored by 20th century historians of Protestantism in Palestine, and their works have been allowed to lie undisturbed in libraries. Meanwhile, Restorationist texts have been reprinted, and Restorationist commentaries and millenarian calculations have been advanced in support of the ideology of Zionism. In an attempt to present a seemingly monolithic support for Protestantism's advocacy of Zionism, Hyamson, Sokolow, Parks, Franz Kobler, Leroy Froome, Tuchman, Meyer-Rett, James A. Dejean, and uh, Michael J. Pragai have in fact attempted to make history subservient to their personal politics. In their hands, scholarship has in fact been manipulated. The purpose of this paper will be twofold. 
to examine the Zionist revisionism of Protestantism and Palestine among 20th century scholars and to analyze the writings of the Protestant anti-restorationists. Since some of the quote-unquote peacemakers of the last quarter of the 20th century have been guided by biblical and literary scholarship, witness Jimmy Carter's The Blood of Abraham, 1885, sorry, 1985, too much 18, uh, 1800, uh, 1985, in which the map of the 1947 partition of Palestine is preceded by the itinerary that Abraham allegedly took from Mesopotamia to Canaan, the presentation of a corrective perspective on restoration is necessary. The discussion will be confined to the 16th and 17th centuries because the scholars mentioned above have invariably turned to the roots of the idea of restoration in the early and recondite centuries of Reformation and post-Reformation England. So yeah, he's basically like going after the roots of this idea that there's always been this consensus around the restoration of the Jews. And uh, it definitely like takes an interesting like turn kind of in line with what you're saying about like the anti-Semitism of this. So he talks about, you know, scholarship on British literature on restoration uh, starting in 1917 with Albert Hyamson's British Projects for the Restoration of the Jews. It was the first publication of the British Palestine Committee and described in a monograph, The English Interest in Jewry. Two years later, Nahum Sokolow prepared a two-volume study of the history of Zionism in which he traced the, quote, Christian religious idea of the restoration of Israel, both in Britain and, fr and France, but with more coverage of the former country. Sokolow was one of the most effective proponents of the Zionist movement in the early part of the 20th century, and his advocacy of this ideology in England was instrumental in preparing for Lord Balfour's approval of a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. Indeed, after he finished his opus, Sokolow asked Lord Balfour to write the preface and the later praised the Zionism of Sokolow, which he urged neither Jew nor Christian should ignore. Another prominent one was James Parks. You know, he's going through all these people. Um, he wrote a different book called uh, Whose Land? A History of the Peoples in Palestine. Uh, it was prominent in advocacy of Zionism and presenting that from the pen of a recognized Christian Britain. Okay. He, yeah. And then, you know, he goes on to talk about, oh, yeah, Barbara Tuchman, who this is an important one because, uh, you know, she's... Her book is pretty sus. Uh, in 1956, Barbara W. Tuchman, the noted American historian, produced Bible and Sword, England and Palestine from the Bronze Age to Balfour, again to examine the British scholarship that has supported the restoration of the Jews. Tuchman has twice been the recipient of Pulitzer Prizes, but not for the above book, and her stature among American historians is considerable. As a result, her Bible and Sword has become an influential text that continues to influence the Western Christian perspective on the question of Palestine. Tuchman is an unabashedly biased in her use of historical material. In particular, there is her facile employment of analogies to minimize, the contemporary, minimize to the contemporary reader to the colonial design on Palestine. She compares the entry of Richard the Lionheart into Jerusalem in the 11th century with that of General Allenby in 1918 as acts of liberation. And she compares an essay by one Nathaniel Crouch in the late 17th century with the British White Paper of 1939. Such parallels and many more are used by Tuchman to demonstrate the historical claim of British <laughs> Protestantism to administer the affairs of the quote-unquote holy land. Throughout the text, Tuchman demonstrates that for her, the study of Palestine cannot be conducted except through Western eyes and from the ideology of empire. Indeed, in the preface to her 1984 edition, Tuchman defends the Israeli colonization of the West Bank on the ground that Texas was won by Americans in the same way. <laughs> After the um, occupation... Yeah. Cool. Tukman, uh, you really, I, I didn't realize uh, she's apparently like a Morgenthau. Yeah. 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 Who her grandfather, Henry Morgenthau, you know, was he, yeah, he was the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire during World War One. Did mm -hmm. he become, was he in Roosevelt's administration? I forget. Uh, I think that. Um, or Henry Morgenthau Jr. Woodrow yeah, Wilson. Yeah, sorry. That Henry yeah. Morgenthau Jr. was Secretary of the Treasury 
under FDR and was a, mm-hmm. a major architect of the uh, of the New Deal. And then uh, Robert Morgenthau was the DA of Manhattan for 35 years. And Barbara Tuchman is also a uh, a granddaughter. Interesting. So yeah, she's got she some like, skin in the game. Yeah, she's okay, definitely she got some Radcliffe. skin in the game. Definitely. And I think yeah. like World War II shit, I don't know, she traveled... Uh, traveled through the trans-siberian railway uh in the 1930s interesting yeah i mean her father was the uh owner of the nation and the president of the american jewish committee um that's right founder of the theater guild it's founded in 1918 uh just like when general allenby entered uh, the theater guild in new york was founded anyway so okay anyway yeah yeah, she she did a lot she did a lot yeah yeah guns Um, of august her father did a lot um yeah Mm -hmm. she did a lot of books yeah Anyway, so, yeah, so such parallels are used to demonstrate the historical claim of British Palestine to administer the affairs of the quote-unquote Holy Land. But the text, Tuchman, demonstrates that for her, the study... Oh, wait, it's part. Okay. After the occupation in, of Jerusalem in 1967, there was a flurry of books. Peter Toon produced Puritans, The Millennium and the Future of Israel in 1970, and the Dutch G- theologian James A. de Jong published in the same year as The Watchers Cover the Sea, Millennial Expectations and the Rise of Anglo-Jewish Mission, uh, 1640 to 1810. Having surveyed writers on the Restoration, he concluded in a statement that recapitulated the sensibility of his predecessors and contemporaries. Jews have returned to Palestine. Nations have heard the good news of salvation in Christ. (laughs) Although many of these facts should be seen from a less optimistic perspective, or sorry, uh, it can perhaps be suggested that were they alive today, the men considered in our study might be startled by the seeming accuracy of a number of their prognostications. The implications of this restorationist literature have long crossed beyond the academic-slash-theological boundaries of the world of real politique. There is, unfortunately, ample evidence about such scholarship on Protestantism in Palestine has influenced the makers of 20th century Middle East policy. Although Lord Balfour was not prone to Christian zeal, the seemingly neutral but voluminous scholarship sorry, voluminous scholarship, by uh, Sokolow provided intellectual acceptability to Balfour's politically expedient declaration. When the British-sponsored Palestine Partition Commission prepared its report in 1938, the authors argued for specific geographical boundaries in order to accommodate quote-unquote Christian opinion and quote-unquote Christian religious sensibilities. Barbara Tuchman's Bible and Sword was republished in 1984 and was read at the highest American level. Here's a book you should read, the vice president told the president. Mr. Mondale had read the book the night before and found it fascinating. It's a quote. Jimmy, no, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) Even though he's like the best American president on this issue, like still, you know, Um, yeah. So then he goes like, you know, back to like, you know, the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But the first example is a good one. The appropriate starting point for a survey of the Reformation's thinking on Jewish restoration lies in the work of the founder of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. Although 20th century historians recognize the start of Restorationism in the wake of the Reformation, none has addressed the fact that for Luther, the Restoration did not signify sympathy for the Jews, but ultimate repulsion. He called for the restoration of the Jews not because he was eager for the Jews to establish a kingdom in Palestine, but in order to rid Germany of them. In his most feminist treatise... Of the Jews and their lies, he scoffed at the Jews for hoping that God will restore their homeland to them. He then added, that country and the roads are open for them to proceed to their land whenever they wish. If they did so, we could be glad. We would be glad to present gifts to them on the occasion. It would be good riddance. 
Yikes. Wow. Um, uh, yes. Ooh, Lutheran's reeling right now. What the fuck? Okay. Yeah. So in that case, right. you know, and I mean. Of the, the Jews and their lies. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the name of his uh, treatise. Yeah. So you can uh, see kind of how this, you know, has this resonates with many of uh, much of what we see now. Uh, many uh, sentiments around this, especially, you know, in the 20th century and before. Mm-hmm. So, uh <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow. Okay. Luther sought to provide a <laughs> theological justification for anti-Semitism rather than to demonstrate biblical fulfillment uh, by turning to the prophecy of restoration. Yeah. God. Um, Consequently, British support for restorationism in the 17th and 18th centuries predominantly developed among Protestants eager to remove the Jews from England. Okay. There it is. All yeah. right. Yeah. I, I um, suspected that, you know, it, it's so funny, though, because it, it's got this patronizing quality of like all the quotes we've sort of read so far are so kind of like how they are today with like evangelicals like so like the wonderful jewish people who are so great and like they'll do wonderful down there to you know get rid of those people but like they they do want them to leave like kind of thing yeah and he, he also is kind of saying like you know He's saying it's ridiculous that they hope this and like if, you know, it like, you know, if they want to go there, like they can go, you know, but he's not like necessarily putting all his stock in this. And the, you know, the idea of it might have gotten like, you know, uh, support from people who wanted to get rid of the Jews. But it basically meant that they were like either going to be Christianized or they were just going to get out like under their own sort of false notion. He even goes on to say that like the anti-restorationism was based on adherence to biblical orthodoxy. Uh, John Calvin condemned in his institutes the Jewish vanity to see and include the kingdom of Christ under the elements of this world. Similarly, William Loud, who became Archbishop of Canterbury, denounced the Restorationist thesis as unchristian. In a sermon celebrating the birthday of King James I in 1621, he announced, It was an old error of the Jews which denied Christ come, that when their Messiahs did come, they should have a most glorious temporal kingdom. So... Yeah, loud mm, realizes okay. the restoration of the Jews. You know, he spells in the classical way with the like, you know, tower with a AU. The restoration of the Jews would lead them to rebuild the t- uh, temple and again offer sacrifices, which oh would conclusively God. prove to the Jews that Jesus was not the Messiah and that their Messiah was yet to come. By so doing, loud categorized the restoration view as a heresy that would illegitimize the Christian faith. In asserting this position, he re- he formulated the official position of the Anglican Church toward this heresy, just as Calvin had defined it for the Presbyterian Church. Clearly, anti-restorationism was not the property of any particular denomination, but cut across Presbyterian, Anglican, and nonconformist divisions, and united writers whose theologies and devotions differed widely. So interesting, interesting. Yeah, this used to be like the Orthodox position, you know, or mm-hmm. not to like the you know the Orthodox uh, Christian, you know what I mean, like that denomination, but like the stand, the mainstream. Uh, Protestant view that like this is a heresy you know he quotes a John Weems a Scottish Presbyterian of considerable contemporary fame Weems rejected the restoration on the grounds of the Jews acceptance of Christianity was incompatible with their desire for a kingdom in Palestine he argued that if Jews were to convert to Christianity then they would accept no monarch but Jesus the Jews when they shall come to the church shall in truth submit themselves to Christ 
However, as Jews opposed Jesus and, quote, said that they would have no other king but Caesar, uh, then they shall never have a king of their own again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, with the uh, uh, orthography there. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, end quote. For Weems, Jews should either convert and join the church or forgo their dreams of restoration, which are fabulous and quite contrary to the scripture. Like Broughton, Weems was pursuing theological consistency. There was no promise in the words of Jesus of a kingdom separate and distinct for the Jews. There was only a kingdom of believers, a church. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, like for all these, like, you know, big classical Protestant theologians, this was actually like incredibly contrary to like basic Christian teaching and like undermined the very idea of a Christian church. I mean that, that it is an interest just on a theological level. It is an interesting point. Like, what happens if they rebuild the temple and then start doing like animal sacrifices again? Because I'm pretty sure maybe it's in Paul, like some of the Pauline epistles or something like that, where he maybe there's a prophecy that like the temple has been destroyed. You know, I forget some of the scripture Christian scriptures that. Uh, you know, the temple has been destroyed and like, it's not going to come back until like Jesus comes back or something like that. Right. Yeah. Or I forget, maybe, maybe it's in revelation, but something about that would contradict it to go back to like the third temple and stuff. And, uh, and so it, it, it's more consistent on a theological level, like the Orthodox position that sort of, it's not justified by, scripture like the protestant reading is a little more radical and it's interesting how they seemed to be more like driven by (laughs) anti-semitism yeah (laughs) like in a a lot of cases like like it was convenient for them to like come up with an explanation because they wanted to send jews back there yeah to clarify before when i was saying orthodox i you know i didn't mean orthodox in the sense of like you know the orthodox christian oh no of course yeah, like the, I mean, the yeah i meant like mainline protestant. uh yeah. protestants right basically. yeah and well like you know as he said it was like presbyterians nonconformists. like it was just like protestants yeah they believed this like that was the normal belief you know like the theologians espouse the other idea like they were criticizing this as like some of a as a jewish idea that was like contrary to to like their own that they you know would have this temple or, or whatever like uh mm-hmm. you know this is yeah, like a, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 not orthodox and not eastern orthodox yeah uh, yeah, right. yes, I don't, exactly. yeah i'm not sure what their stance is on this i feel like probably those who are like arab christians in palestine probably like aren't about uh this belief at this point but i don't know what they what they think it's interesting to, to ask though I'm, I'm curious to know like what the the stance is but well across yeah. all these readings i mean i think that it seems like the protestants were more they were the most active with the sort of like jewish sort of you know, resettlement, yeah, exactly. quote unquote, kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas the, the Catholics were trying to penetrate, but they were like, they weren't so much trying to bring lots of Jewish people to Palestine. No, 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 no. Like they were trying they, to increase their own Catholic population. They had people yeah, exactly. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the Jews were basically what Britain and, and Protestants, you know, building those cathedrals and everything. Uh, they were like what Britain turned to um, in order to, you know, uh, have their own kind of stake and their own sort of sp- protected group. Because they were uh, at such a numerical disadvantage yeah. with... I mean, they did try to 
convert, you know, to proselytize, to yeah. win over, like to get Orthodox Christians to convert, apparently. Yeah. And they um, tried to convert the Jews a little bit too, but it like didn't That didn't really work take. either. Yeah. yeah. Nobody they, was buying it. So they're like, well, at least the Jews, like they, they do have some kind of historical like claim to be here and they're like they believe in their religion they're not gonna they're clearly not gonna abandon it for ours so you know we could use them as a kind of people that have an incentive to move there and then uh we can justify it scripturally and it's very the way way that sculch uh uh, describes like the like gradual abandonment of like the uh the plan they would convert like first it was like they they're gonna convert first and then go back then it's like well they're gonna go back first and they're gonna convert and then it's like "Eh," (laughs) like i guess they're just not gonna convert now like we just radically support like the extermination of palestinians by israel (laughs) yeah whatever uh, and they're never gonna be christian and that's fine and we must defend them to our dying breath the purpose of a system is what it does and i think it did what like the a lot of the sponsors of it you know the secular part of it was alluring enough that you know like or maybe it lays bare to some extent kind of the cynicism subconscious or not of a lot of these like theologians that were justifying it that it was a kind of instrumental excuse yeah uh, exactly for something else they wanted whether it was economic and cultural penetration of like you know the palestinian region or they want to get rid of all the jews or something it's like there were ulterior motives going on that were satisfied one way or another like i mean i guess they didn't really get rid of the jews but like you know many presumably left and then israel was eventually established and you know they did penetrate I mean, uh, my like certainly this is not my qualm with uh, the existence of Israel that it uh, you know delays uh, the conversion of the Jews, but I do think that this guy, uh, Robert Bailey, uh, died sixteen sixty two, a minister at Glasgow, uh, who became active in London politics during the heady years of the sixteen forties. Uh, he had a he had a, po- uh, a point about this. That I think you know he 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 was right about the issue where he uh, he said again like you know I don't think that there should I don't I don't care about converting Jews to Christianity at all. But you know insofar as one does like I think he was had the right assessment of it, which was uh, it says uh, having opposed the imposition of the Book of Common Prayer in Scotland, Bailey thought that the English Parliament and army would sympathize with Scottish theology. But much to his distress, while attending Westminster's sermons, Bailey became aware of the prevalence of the Papian heresy, Millenarianism and its offshoot, quote, the restoration of the Jews. His opposition to them was based on the theological orthodoxy of Master Petri and Master Hain, and on his belief that a Jewish kingdom in Palestine could not but delay the conversion of the Jews. For him, such doctrinal innovation was contrary to biblical teaching. The Jews are never to be restored to their ancient outward estate, much least to a greater and more glorious kingdom. Jerusalem was not to be rebuilded, and the spiritual glory of the second temple was to be greater than the first. To expound the prophets in this uh, fashion were to stumble uh, the Jews and to give them too great an excuse for their long misbelief and too pregnant arguments uh, for to delay their faith. So that's probably true that like probably uh, it seems like it would actually having their own sovereign national home would probably delay that from happening. Again, that's not the reason why one should oppose Israel, but it's weird that it is odd that like this weird calculus has emerged where like this makes us closer to this sort of weird prophecy that we believe in for no reason. Yeah, Um, yeah. Or I mean, the darker thing of that is like, that I associate more with like modern evangelicals is like, well, you know, 
they'll have a choice to convert like, yeah. when the rapture right. happens. Yeah. And if they don't do it in time, well, like they're going to hell. <laughs> like you The know, whole rapture thing. When did anyone even make that? I feel like these people didn't even know about that. No, <laughs> like, we'll have to, we'll ha- we'll have to dig into like the actual roots of the, they're probably more recent. I've, but yeah, the, definitely. The I feel like it's style. like so, yeah, it's just people like not like wanting to experience like the tribulation. Like it's people like getting too like soft, like emotionally to deal with like there being anything bad that happens that they have have to experience yeah we'll we'll probably get into that as a i'm sure one the, day in one episode we'll probably have reason to discuss where the fucking rapture comes from as an idea um, i mean like we might have to uh in uh if we you know do another installment of this uh well, we definitely will to, but well, we do yeah. yeah for for more recent history because it certainly comes in at some point and it's like worth tracing the lineage of these uh millenarian ideas because they, they but you're right though that they they were different in the 19th century I, i'm not seeing any evidence of necessarily like they almost see it as like this is the you know biblically prophesied redemption arc or like conclusion arc of the jews is that yeah. like they're gonna go back like it's like some superhero movie shit where there's like a bad guy, but then at the end he like switches sides and like he's a good <laughs> guy, and then he like uh, f- sacrifices himself to save everybody or something. Like it's it's this thing where like they're gonna go back and bring Western civilization, but also they're all gonna convert to Christianity and thus like stop being you know heretics and bad, and they're also going to like colonize the Middle East and like take it implicitly they're going to push back these Muslims or convert the Muslims or really there's not even a lot of talk about converting the Muslims. It's really just like, get rid of them. Who cares? Right. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe I mean, the I'm Arab sh- Christians and eh, like maybe you convert some of yeah. them or, or, you know, convert them into productive workers or something like that <laughs> is kind of the nicest thing they're kind of considering as a kind of gently colonized population that will benefit from our civilization, etc like by proxy through the mm-hmm. European Jewish emigres and yeah. uh, who, who like fingers crossed are going to become Christian any minute.
I don't know. It's interesting how, like, today, uh, or since the creation of Israel, that, you know, there's really not a lot of focus on, like, proselytizing. I mean, a big reason is probably because that's not very effective. People don't want to switch their religion under these circumstances, especially. In terms of, like, how the religious, like, the Christian people think about it, it's not really about... You know, in other contexts, they might, you know, they said that in the Americas, right? That we're here to, like, spread God and, like, convert these people. I mean, they really were, you know, stealing and killing, etc. But, like, there was that justification behind it that was a big, you know, uh, exoteric reason why this was justified or godly. And with Israel, maybe because you're, like, they're mediating through another religious group that they themselves want to convert, but then ultimately they're like eh so then there's not really a way to convert all these people to christianity i don't know it's also interesting because of the way they look at eastern christians i feel like in the 19th century as well as like i mean this is still an era where a lot of these people are freaking out about like a popery and like the weird mystical superstitions of eastern orthodox people like i mean they're they're basically doing idolatry is like what a lot of protestants think they did not look favorably yeah actually uh i might be getting myself in trouble here by once again endorsing another like 17th century like prod uh you know protestant theologian as base like with with cotton mather but i'm gonna go ahead and do it uh you know, this is what uh, Matar says about uh, Richard Baxter, the greatest Presbyterian theologian in 17th century Britain. He's the one person who <laughs> stood up for the Palestinians. Although Baxter's career stand, uh, spanned the tumultuous decades of that century, his concern with millenarianism and the Jews did not surface until his last years. During his lifetime, Baxter witnessed civil wars, the interregnum, and the restoration, along with the, you know, that is the British restoration, you know, kind of confusing context, but along with the glorious revolution of uh, 1688. Unlike his contemporaries, he had lived long enough to see how variable and unreliable biblical prophecies were when rashly applied to contemporary events. He had heard sermons in the same biblical verse announcing and praising the same group. He had seen quote-unquote saints executed and quote-unquote sinners raised to power. The political and military affairs of the world, he came to realize, could not be reliably understood by reference to ancient prophecies. Baxter viewed the issue of restoration from both historical and theological perspectives. Theologically, he repeated the orthodox view that quote-unquote God never meant to restore the Jewish policy polity under Moses' law, for that law is abrogated by Christ, and so that polity. Furthermore, he urged that all prophecies of quote-unquote restoration had been fulfilled in the advent of Christ. Prophecies of the honor of the Jews and the restoration had diverse degrees of fulfilling. One, they were primarily fulfilled in return from captivity and the power that followed under uh, Zorobabel and the Maccabees. Two, they were further fulfilled by the coming of the Messiah, of the seed of Abraham and David, in whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Three, they were further fulfilled at Christ's resurrection, ascension, and effusion of the Holy Ghost, and the many thousands of them converted, and they're spreading the gospel over the Gentile world. Four, it was yet more fulfilled when dominion was given to Christians, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in all Israel, and settled a national church in Judea, and put all their enemies in subjection to the Catholic Church of the Jewish and Gentile Christians, reconciled in one body, the partition wall being broken down. Five, it will be yet more fulfilled in the new heaven and earth. The more striking argument that Baxter offered against restoration and which no other theologian had ever pondered was a moral one. Baxter observed that Palestine was already populated and asked a (laughs) cogent question. Must all that now possess it be robbed of their habitations and estates to make room for our Jews? For the first time in the whole theological controversy, a Christian divine had turned to the moral implications of the quote-unquote restoration for the population of Palestine. 
Such concern for the native inhabitants of Palestine was not frequent even among the anti-restorationists. Fear of the Turkish Empire, of which Palestine constituted a segment, resulted in antipathy toward the Muslim and Christian communities of Palestine. This attitude was in direct contrast to the concern that was being expressed vigorously from pulpits for the Indians in America. The hostility to the Arabs was not mere repulsion at the exotic, but a factor that was sustained by the military might of the quote-unquote East. This explains why English preachers hoped to convert the Indians and denounce the slave traders, but rarely sounded a favorable note about the Arabs. Palestine, Palestine and its people were in the domain of the theologically unredeemable and thus the damnable. It is striking. Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it is striking that in the 7th century, 17th century literature on restorationism and anti-restorationism, there are very few prayers on behalf of the Muslims and the Eastern Christians, but there are many for the quote-unquote brutish Indians, and there is a chorus for the conversion of the Jews. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that makes sense that the Eastern question, or you know, the Eastern menace, it Before hits differently. The question for per se, but yeah, the uh, certainly the menace. Yeah, because then, like, this is the 17th century. Then the Ottoman Empire, it wasn't like the sick man of Europe. It was like mm -hmm. you know the Chad of Europe. It was kind of the Chad of Europe, and yeah. I mean that is in addition to like sticking up for the people that uh that have that are on the land, uh, which is based. You know, it's at least a uh, consistent, it's like a logically consistent theological take. Like, according to Chris, I totally understand if Jews disagree. <laughs> you know, because, um, like, that's the, it's like, yeah, that well, would be true, but he's not the point Messiah. Of view, but from but a Christian the, point of view. From a Jewish point of view, it's not. But from a Christian of point course. of view, yes. Like, if you're a Christian, that it makes sense that, well, no, like, the, the, the kingdom was, like, brought by Jesus. Like, the kingdom... They do have a kingdom. They just have to, like, you know, come on in and, like, you know, accept Jesus, accept Christ, brother, you know? And then uh, there it is, you know? And, of course, like, obviously you could see the but, Jewish counterpoint uh, to be, well, like, Well, no, we should mention— But we're talking about Christians sponsoring this idea and justifying it in their scripture, and it's, like, there's kind of, like, some gymnastics going on to, like, really craft this narrative that— you know, the restoration needs to happen, that it's ordained by God, that it's the destiny for both Europe and the Jews of Europe to basically go back and take it, take back the Holy Land from those like evil, perfidious uh, Arab Muslims. And like, it is kind of, I mean, it's low key got crusade energy, right? Like, it's oh, you know yeah. like it's giving crusade energy but it's a more subtle it's i mean not it's not a peaceful crusade but it's almost no. like i mean it's a subliminal crusade yeah. in a lot of ways right it's a crusade when like you yeah you don't have like the like power to actually like marshal a crusade at this point yeah but we and should mention you know the minority like championing by championing minority rights and also <laughs> unquote, like protecting. religion yeah protecting yeah. like this kind of paternalism of well you know this is the original r2p you know responsibility to protect we have to intervene in a situation except it's like funny at the time like the british are like occupying ireland and like colonized india and you know, like all around the world. But then it's like, you know, hey, Palestine, like you Arabs, like you need to get out of the way because this is unfair. It's just, yeah. Anyways. I mean, we should mention, though, that like, yeah, we were saying that, you know, from a Jewish point of view, like obviously none of this stuff about like converting to Christianity would like be coherent. But there is like definitely like Jewish, like purely theological opposition to Zionism. 
Oh, uh, to this day, right? Yeah. I mean, some of the uh, Orthodox communities. Yeah, the Haredes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure there's, like, even more than that. Like, I mean, obviously, there was certainly, like, I read an interesting article for, for this, actually, the, like, uh, like, uh, like Ottomanism versus uh, Zionism, because, like, especially during that time around, like, uh, you know, we didn't really properly get to this this point in this episode. I feel like there's still, we kind of, like, are still in the 1840s, like, in a way, even though we've talked, like, a little bit beyond that and a little bit before in typical, like, elliptical uh, SJ fashion. But yeah, we're in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I did, uh, you know, I did read this interesting article on like uh, Zionism versus Ottomanism, and this kind of talks about like that, especially during that point in time, the um, like the Young Turk Revolution. There was like a sort of feeling that like, oh, you know, well maybe like this Ottoman identity is uh, what we like, you know, should uh, embrace. Yeah, this is. I think it's Michelle Campos. Yeah, Michelle Campos, who's written a lot about this topic of like Ottoman identity she writes uh, in the years between the young turk revolution and world war one the jewish communities of the ottoman empire were on the brink of a real communal crisis epitomized in the dilemma with which they were faced what should be their role within the reforming empire both as ottoman citizens and as jews like their neighbors ottoman jews struggled to navigate the challenging new reality that promised universal rights and privileges for all of the empire's religious and ethnic groups at the same time that ethnic and proto-nationalist sentiments were on the rise on one hand, Ottoman Jews sought to stake a claim in the new Ottoman body politic, adopting Ottomanism as an ideology as well as actively participating in shaping the new Ottoman civic life. On the other hand, this period coincided with the community's progressive exposure to and reception of the ideas and institutions of European Zionism. Ottoman Jews throughout the empire responded variously to these contradictory appeals. For many, Zionism was considered a betrayal of the quote-unquote beloved Ottoman homeland, particularly unjustifiable coming on the heels of civic enfranchisement and the optimistic new dawn promised by the revolution. Others, however, saw Zionism as both a legitimate expression of Jews' collective cultural aspirations and a fortuitous boon that would bring a tremendous economic and social utility to their beloved empire, consciously divorcing their adoption of Zionism from the territorial political aspirations of the European Zionist movement. So there's lots of, like, nuance there. I remember... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever gone to, like, a Seder, like a Jewish Seder? I don't think I've actually been to a Seder. There's, like, this thing they do where it's, like, the wise son and the wicked son or something. Uh, Wise Mm. son, wicked son trying to find it like uh it's, it always gets repeated like um yeah the four it's a like passover right the haggadah uh tells of the four sons the wise son the evil or the wicked son the rebellious son uh the tam uh who's you know i guess uh, the simple son that's the tam and finally the son who doesn't know how to ask what are, what are they asking i'm trying to figure out uh let me see trying to find the actual thing like uh, can i like not find a copy of like this uh passover haggadah like um online or something you know sorry uh hmm. yeah let me see i'm looking like i'm gonna look up passover Hagada <laughs> because mm-hmm. i don't really know like what they're actually even asking off the top of my head how is this night different from all other nights is like what they ask i guess yeah the the wise child asks details about the specific meaning of the laws of passover observance what are the testimonies of statutes and the laws which i'll deny our god has commanded you to which we respond with one of the very specific laws of the passover seder the wicked child asks Whatever does this mean to you? The author's admonishes child is one who's not concerned about the laws personally, but only for others. Yeah, there's like, it's actually written out somewhere, like, you know, in that, like, sort of Maxwell Coffee, like, Haggadah you can get. 
But uh, the simple child asks, what does this mean with a straightforward summary of the story is given directly from the child? So, like, you know, but anyway, I remember seeing uh, the reason why I mentioned this because, you know, the wise child is the one who's like, you know, caring. And uh, then there's like the sort of wicked or like the rebellious child. And I remember seeing like a cartoon from like the early days of like the establishment of Israel. And it was like depicting these four sons. And like the wise child was like this kind of like muscular Jewish, you know, like kind of Aryan looking like blonde Uh guy, like plowing the soil. And the wicked son was like this big nose, like Arab looking, you know, who's like kind of like Sephardic. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of Sephardic or kind of like, you know, wanting to live in the way like rebelliously like wanting to live the way that like they had before like as part of like you know uh among uh arabs and like among you know in like ottoman society um yeah there's that that civilizing narrative kicking in again and uh yeah bringing the western enlightenment from yeah european sophistication blah 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 yeah that's wild. Yeah, it's also it's interesting, like the split between Ottoman identity and, you know, Zionist identity in like the late Ottoman Empire. It sounds very similar to like the splits that were happening just a little bit later in Europe, like between a lot of European Jews gravitating towards like socialism and yeah. ideas of, like internationalism and then or Bolshevism. And then others like gravitating towards Zionism. And mm-hmm. I mean, to some degree, like the lineage of that split, like, yeah. I guess that that's true. There's also, there was crossover because there are people mm-hmm. that sort of supported the the Israel project that kind of had like a socialist idea. Yeah, some of the early waves were like socialists. Yeah, for sure. Though they feel very uh, degraded, you know. Like, yeah. But that also was a period where the left was like much more uh, ascendant than mm-hmm. it is today. So it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, it kind of mirrors Europe and the United States in that whatever kind of maybe like socialist ideas were in the mix uh, have kind of been foreclosed upon. And now it's like the more right wing version of whatever it was. But yeah, I think that that dynamic of kind of internationalist leaning towards nation state in Palestine leaning. I think you can still see the fissures today, like between, you know, you have these Jewish groups that are protesting. Oh yeah. They hate like Jewish voice for Palestine and students for justice in Palestine. You know, any Jewish group for Palestine, like they hate more than anything else. I mean, they generally, I'd say like hardcore Zionists, like they don't like diaspora Jews. Um, yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. you know, where they have like a you know, unless they're unless they're on board, you know, a lot of them also are diaspora Jews, but you know what I mean, like they don't like it if uh, if you're willing to accept that, you know, being a part of another country. Yeah, it's like the birthright thing, like step forward if like yeah, you exactly, feel more Israeli exactly. than like American, yeah. and like um, everybody does it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, that uh, that tension, right? And I mean, it, yeah, getting down to the prophecy of like you know, you've been a. Uh, almost like this model diaspora community for like 2000 years. And like, is that going to continue to be the identity or are we going to like do a vibe shift and go back, you know, sort of to having like a fortress state? I don't know. But then, you know, it's one thing to have the idea. It's another thing to have all these uh, Protestant powers like gassing you up and being like, yes, like do it. Like Mm -hmm. for their own kind of weird, like selfish the worldly reasons there's a lot of toxic factors <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> of like horrible lot. Fa- like toxic factors certainly like yeah there's that sense of like omnipotence and that sense of like total like unaccountability to for anything that you do that has like been cultivated 
Um, and this, yeah, this kind of like, like messianic, like feeling around it that has certainly contributed. I guess, I mean, we haven't even gotten to Zionism proper yet. Um, no, this, like I all mean, the maybe, sicko shit yeah. like that we've seen thus far, like all the, this like revolting sentiments, like all of the, like the fraud and like all of the, like the theft is like only a mere prelude. It's literally nothing compared to what actually happens. Like in, like, certainly at, at, like in the actual Nakba and like all of that stuff. Like, you absolutely, know, that, absolutely. Like, yeah, this is just like giving context to, to that. Yeah. But um, but even like later in the in the 19th and early 20th century, like it amidst the World War One. It's absolutely insane. Like 1882 is a big kind of turning point, right? Where mm-hmm. emigration starts to like really accelerate from Europe to Palestine. And I assume along with that, like land purchases, maybe from those absentee landlords, that mm-hmm. we were talking about. And also that is around the time that like Theodor Herzl uh, kind of comes on the scene, right? Zionism proper kind of coalesces and uh, maybe that's where we start <laughs> next time. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, or just, uh, I mean, because I think also talking about the extent of the growth of, because like, I mean, we're talking about kind of like the philosophical, the religious mm-hmm. and the political like, uh, precursors and justifications for embarking on this kind of colonial project this uh, mm-hmm. penetration of you know the land of palestine i think we've well established there are already people living there yes <laughs> you know and if you want to split hairs about deeds and shit like that well unfortunately like i don't think that's a good you know thing to hang concepts it's of kind fairness of like if someone on. just like came into your house and was like i now own this house like and you're like what what are you talking about and they're like uh i illegally own it because you forfeit your right of ownership to your house if you don't like stand in the corner and sing i'm a little teapot like every day like you know it's like a exactly different legal paradigm like it, yeah, yeah we're getting into like, some sneaky rules like rules based fuckery about like well technically like you know no fuck that i think we can all acknowledge that when people are like living on land that that's their land where they live and then if you like violently drive them away from that that is stealing their land and yeah like, you know i mean like i and said we, like, we live in a country that did that over the course of <laughs> yes. several centuries you know and so in a sense you know on the one hand we should know better we should know it when we see it on the other hand i think we're kind of uh raised to not see it and not think about it and so yeah maybe in a, in a, in a pernicious way i mean this is maybe more relevant to like americans but we're a little blind to it because we don't want to see it in ourselves. So like we, that behavior has been normalized in a way. And it's like, well, you know, or we're, we're well conditioned to hearing rationalizations for, well, yeah, that happened, but there's definitely a similar dynamic. I think at play. And even, you know, the, this is also like a version of like what you would call manifest destiny. Mm hmm. It yeah. really is. I mean, absolutely. Oh, I mean, we'll yeah, probably I mean, next time we'll get into that's being Americans. manifested for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the kind of European theologians, but it's like definitely the same idea. And in a way, like Europeans have their own version of manifest destiny, which is like going around colonizing all of these different countries. Like they all had their pie in the sky kind of belief of having like a vast dominion and that it was sort of God's plan for them 
very convenient to tell yourself that it's God's plan. And so then, you know, they could kind of, it's it's so funny. It's like they deputize, like, you know, these early Zionists to be like, yeah, we're, we're sponsoring, like, God's plan on your behalf. So, like, go go down there and take it for us, and then, like, we'll I mean, do business and And shit. also these early Zionists, like, often, like, pitched it to them that way. Not to say they only pitched it to the British. Those are the people who ended up taking the offer and, like, implementing it after World War One. But they yeah. pitched it to the Ottomans a bunch of times, especially during the time when, like, this sort of stance in the Eastern question was, like, we got to preserve the Ottoman Empire in some form. So. And generally pitched it on, like, capitalist terms. Like, yeah. you know, like, we th- this will be, you know, and you see that pressure increasing An on the Ottoman Empire. Of civilization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, don't you want to uh, modernize? Don't you want to modernize? And this is, you know, this is the, the era yeah, of, I like... Yeah, I think at one point, like, Theodore Herzl, like, offered to, like, manage all the finances of the Ottoman Empire or something. <laughs> no, it's wild. It's wild. And, I mean, this is, like, the explosive century of like the huge you know expansion of capitalism of like industrial capitalism and you can see the pressure on the ottomans to like basically catch up to that and that's where a lot of this like pressure to quote-unquote modernize i think just comes from is like they sort of needed to do something because these other countries were getting more organized with their systems of production and their output and everything and you know the older this really was like the, the older kind of eclectic feudal systems were going to become increasingly fragile and unstable, like trying to keep up with like where the sort of increasingly globalized markets uh, were going. And then, of course, you know, those seductive inducements and nudges from the Europeans to like change this change. And then, of course, yeah, like we I think we said it briefly, but the sort of financial crisis in the 1870s and like the bank i mean they sort of went bankrupt right the ottomans they did yeah they were deep in debt to european powers and that was the context in which like herzl approached him and was like i'll give you 20 million dollars if you give me palestine it's so funny every every fucked up story about like a place around the world like does kind of start with like well they got into financial trouble and then they accepted a bunch of loans from like something in europe either the imf or like <laughs> european powers or like america wall street yeah. or something and they get busted out every fucking time like it's just like don't take the imf loan i know like i know they put you in a position where you can't say no but like it's a trap every time and so yeah they were under the thumb of like this debt load right to the europeans which kind of like they got them where they want them a little bit and you know weren't ready to kill them off just yet but designs were being made. I mean, we can dig in. I was watching a documentary thing about the Balfour Declaration, and mm-hmm. I think it was called, like, How Britain Started the <laughs> Arab-Israeli Conflict or something. Uh-huh. It was, like, a 90s, like, British documentary. But good good kind of primer stuff. And I think what we will also talk about next time, uh, one Israeli professor in this documentary noted that, like, as things intensified, and then, you know, the British mandate, Palestine, whatever, that um, he attributes a lot to the fact that the, the Arabs, like, didn't have as good of PR as uh, the Zionists did. Uh, he said, you know, they had a better case for their position, but they didn't know how to, like, persuade, basically, like, Europeans uh, to see it their way. Whereas uh, the, the Zionists had a case, it was much weaker, but they were excellent advocates for themselves. And he said that Zionism was one of the greatest public relations success stories of the 20th century. And I think maybe like next time 
we'll also kind of talk about that. I mean, we talk about like Zionism proper because it really is, I, I think before we uh, recorded all of this, like when we were like prepping, we talked about like Israel or Zionism, like not even being like a psyop, but like going into on top territory yeah. because it is like created this totally kind of topsy-turvy narrative out of kind of scraps of, you know, historical whatever theology or mythology or whatever. Like, and it is, uh, it has embedded itself in like the beliefs of uh, certainly the Western world, like the European world, Mm -hmm. like in America where like so many things are taken for granted. And then people just think like, People have a reflexive kind of support for it, or they have a religious reason, or it's like a chauvinistic, secular, like a Bill Maher type position. I mean, like, he doesn't believe in fucking religion, but he he acknowledges that the Israelis, like, need to be there. Religious, yeah. Because you can't otherwise, like, you know, you can't be gang Gaza. And yet, yet, like, uh, supporting a kind of, like, a state that's (laughs) Um, literally justified by religious, like, principles. I mean, yeah, like, I guess maybe he would say like, well, they lived there two thousand years ago, so like they were on the land. So, but yeah, it's like, there was no, there was no country there before. Just no like no country. Yeah. Same, so yeah, like all the, the perception management, like, the PR involved to change that perception and keep it changed, and like up to this day, like to have everybody kind of misinformed about totally the actual situation oblivious. and like people who are like yeah like daniel pinchback i think is an amazing example like someone who's like you know uh he's uh his uh mind is so open that his brain fell out like and you know he's like uh, talking about like this sort of paradigm shift like sus like you know like pan psychic revolution or whatever and yet well, it's just simply a fait accompli like that Israel has to genocide all the Palestinians. It just simply has to happen. You know, like that is absolutely an on top. That's like really like that's the real like quote unquote. That's like Zionist realism, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to coin a phrase of, of Mark Fisher, where like we can't see outside capitalism. People can't see outside like a genocide happening. Like if you can't uh, if you Israel's can't right imagine if you can't imagine otherwise worlds like when it comes to that like what the hell worth is anything that you're saying? Yeah, if you can't imagine all an your alternative to like ethnic diplomas. cleansing, then like wh- why should I? Wow, well, man, psychedelics really expand your mind. Except I simply can't see any way that this genocide c- is not necessary. <laughs> I'm yeah. I I mean I'm grateful that like we sort of flagged that at the beginning of this year and like kind of jumped on it the the sus like maps Israel Palestine kind of overlap because part of the on top is to like how do we live with this situation and not be disturbed by it or upset you know just like sort of live in a dissociated a blissful state like this is such a good example of like how psychedelics or uh, things like like new age philosophies could be used in a somewhat nefarious, instrumental way to like do the opposite of sort of liberating people and bringing sort of good things into the world. Like they could be as tools. They could be the they could aid very bad things happening. But part of their like danger comes from people thinking that they're utopian and they're gonna. You know what I mean? Like like it's whatever. Okay, you're you killed a bunch of people and now you take ecstasy and you feel better. Like whatever. I, I'm not here to police what people put in their bodies, but 
I think what's more dangerous is like that, like this is the way to heal and like I am healed now. Like this narrative you tell yourself or, you know, the go aside trance kind of people like dancing by that border fence and kind of not even thinking about the bad vibes of that. Just just the bad vibes of that alone or the contradiction. Yeah, like having a rave in apartheid South Africa. And actually, <laughs> I mean, wasn't that also a thing too where there was some thing with apartheid South Africa in the 90s, like flooding the market with MDMA, there basically was like trying that, to, you know what I mean? I, I, like, I don't know if it was MDMA, but there, I remember there was like that. It wasn't in there was South Nexus, Africa though, There was Nexus, the right? 2CB. Yeah, Nexus. That, but, that- but also, we have, I don't, we've yet to really dig into, I've just heard this reference before, that there was some kind of like sus, like, you know, in, South African intelligence services in maybe the late 80s or the early 90s, and the rave thing was, uh, you know, popping off of uh, and i think there was a significant israeli connection i've always heard that about like oh all the mdma in the world is like manufactured in, is- in israel or something like that mm-hmm. i don't think that's literally true but i mean it it's like a hub of mdma apparently since for decades and mm-hmm. it's like yeah huh, interesting so uh that's something more to look into uh one day but yeah it's scary to see that now be even like daniel pinchbeck like I think Rick Doblin has kind of gone underground and is not commenting (laughs) on IDF matters at the moment. But like Daniel Pinchbeck's still kind of out there of like, let's project a blue beam like Temple and like force feed uh, terrorists like MDMA, like till and play them like bass nectar till their face melts and like make them accept a guy religion. Uh, Like it's just so (laughs) you've been on top. Like if you're, kind of like approaching a crisis like that or like the inability to look at that and be like the the formation of israel was like a colonial project yeah like so being able to say that it's not a colon- like it's like I get textbook it. in like, both case everything that they deny it's like a textbook example yeah. of like it's this is a textbook genocide if you want to say yes it was a colonial project but we live here now and we're not going to go and like we have to find a way to live together and whatever it has shit happens in history i think that i mean you could disagree with that but that's at least like you're acknowledging it people like no not not colonial not colonial it's like no i don't think the solution necessarily is to uh expel the jews from like palestine however like I definitely do think that the current constitution of Israel, like the state of Israel is currently constituted, is something that certainly should end and like should not exist. The uh, South Africa yeah, like, uh, thing is an example. Absolutely. Yeah. Like South um, Africa is a good example of, and you know, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Perhaps it, it's worth like clarifying at least once. <laughs> like, yeah. Like we're not calling for like, we're not implying uh, in these episodes that like, uh, anybody should be like wiped out or something like that. But a situation no, like South Africa, and the whole assumption, like it's actually, you know, uh, I'm not sure. And this is, this is actually from an Atlantic article. I think it's called like, it has a horrible title, which is like when racial progress comes for white liberals, that makes it sound like some kind of like, you know, racist, like anti cancel culture piece, which maybe is what the Atlantic commissioned. And they've now paywalled it. Cause I feel like it is so relevant to what's currently going on now. And what people are currently saying, because I I've even seen people like, uh, you know, on the quote unquote left, which as we've said many times, it means nothing. If someone says that until they actually like, you know, demonstrate their views saying like, why do people support a one state solution? Like <laughs> these Muslims would just kill every Jew if they had the chance. And it's really like resonant with, uh, that Atlantic piece that I read where it talks about like that, how that same expectation 
and you can read copiously about this, like that same idea was so prevalent in the discourse around apartheid South Africa that if there was equality, like if apartheid was abolished, somehow there, like the what there would be white genocide. Oh, the blacks you know? will, you know, they'll yeah. come and just slaughter everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, yeah, this is an amazing like quote from from that article, and I think this is like what. Uh, you know, uh, Israelis like are afraid of are a lot of them. The Afrikaner journalist Rayan Milan, who opposed apartheid, has written that by most measures, his aftermath went better than almost any white person could have imagined. But as with most white progressives, his experience of post-1994 South Africa has been complicated. A few years after the end of apartheid, he moved into an upscale Cape Town neighborhood. Most mornings, he drank macchiatos at an upscale seaside cafe, the kind of cosmopolitan place that, thanks to sanctions, that hardly existed under apartheid. The sea is warm and the figs are ripe, he wrote. He also described his existence as unbearable. He just couldn't forgive black people for forgiving him. Paradoxically, being left undisturbed served as an ever-present reminder of his guilt, of how wrongly he had treated his maid and other black people under apartheid. The Bible was right about a thing or two, he wrote. It is infinitely worse to receive than to give. Especially if the gift is mercy. Gee, okay. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. The, Interesting. Well, Interesting. because like, but they also, need yeah, to I believe mean, that in order to justify what they're doing. They need to believe that like, if the shoe was on the other foot, they would like yeah. instantly fucking murder all them. But that didn't happen. That didn't yeah, happen didn't historically. Happen. You know? No. Like, not to say there weren't communal tensions, but like they had their chance. You know, and, and also I think as that if, Abdul Hamid like, would have tolerated you know. it, you know, he probably would have turned the other, you know, the other cheek or not turn the other cheek, you know, he would have looked the other way. Also, as if and that would not, not like... have been good. That would not have been good. Just to clarify, that would have been an atrocity, much like the Armenian genocides and all that stuff uh, and the Hamidian yeah. massacre, all the, you know, every, of course. But, you know, the point yeah. is that like this belief that if the shoe went their foot, you know, they would do this if they could like that justifies what they do even though it's completely contrafactual bullshit. I mean, I, I could think of hypothetical situations where, you know, you would transition to like a one state situation and I yeah. don't know, like I mean, deploy you would the UN be or something. very delicate like, about it because yeah, like, people are very careful. angry for justifiable reasons. Yeah. It There's is been a lot of beef. Like the other countries have kind of had to do this before. You would definitely at least need like, you know, mediation. <laughs> of the situation like truly you know impartial mediation although people's no one will be able to agree on what's impartial so anyway but the imagination have... is constricted from even contemplating that because uh yeah i mean oh. uh, like, people can't even imagine a ceasefire <laughs> you know no, like, you can't even no. imagine not just bombing gaza into rubble to quote-unquote get hamas which uh, is not what they are trying to do <laughs> exactly exactly no i think uh we're we're, we're recording this i don't think i don't think we set it up top 40 on, uh, days into this is it 40 days wow propitious so, yeah. um yeah november 19th sunday yeah so not um, four days but 40 ish so the uh al shifa hospital has been besieged and uh yeah the brave idf the powerful army has successfully conquered the hospital um, yeah, the underground command center, which is yeah. not materialized. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 horrors kind of continue. It seems like now we're in the uh, the fake protestation stage, where uh, a lot of countries are kind of oh, like ceasefire now, but pretty empty gestures. It feels like also some of the the Arab countries as well doesn't feel like they're really stepping up to the plate. Um, no, they never have. Not even Hezbollah has really. I mean, Nasrullah said some stuff. They've stepped up more, but like not as much as 
one would hope you know not to be like an armchair mujahid here but (laughs) just saying like come on yeah it's a very it's strange and kind of chilling period where sort of less information is getting out from gaza except for periodic reports of like new atrocity the un school was bombed like yeah and then kind of uh, like these these gentle calls for like maybe chilling out just a little bit or like a five day ceasefire like it really shows you how like genocides happened (laughs) you know like it's really like a it it makes it anyone who's like you know wondering like how did the holocaust happen like just look at this this is exactly how it happened it's yeah it's not like quite yet and hopefully won't be like on the same scale but it's still like is the exact same dynamics where everyone just looks the other way because like no one wants them you know or whatever uh makes up fucking bullshit excuses or minimizes it or like it, you know pretends it's not happening who are the um, arabs who are the palestinians yeah, you know are, yeah i mean uh, I, i've no even su- seen there's no such country <laughs> no i've, I've seen that before that like yeah. yeah it's like they're not they're just kind of generic yeah. arabs like they yeah don't have exactly a like, yeah they just need to go yeah there's uh, there's plenty of countries they can go to like jordan you know why not go there they're arabs um uh, yeah yeah so next time i think maybe zooming in on uh the rise of zionism itself and of course it's uh it's european backers and going into uh the world war one era we might be able to get to the Palestine, you know, the British mandate, <laughs> I think, next time. Um, yeah, we're already kind of pushing up against it, I think. Yeah. It's pretty um, close. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, there's there's some, I guess, like, the certain kind of early well, whiffs of, like, Arab nationalism on. to yeah. also talk about in the, the young Turk turn Revolution of the century. And the stu- a lot goes on during World War One too, you know, that might be good to get into. So, yeah. Yeah, another we, aspect we, we that I feel like get you don't it, hear too much. But we might much. not actually get to it, you know. Like, we might get yeah. to it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. It's yeah, true. The whole um, idea, yeah, it's funny, like, the, the title for this and the work flowy is, like, end mandate uh no not mandate we didn't even make it to the 19th century um no no, no. next it's time okay, maybe though. we'll get to the 20th century maybe that is what we'll achieve that that's a seems like a reasonable goal for next time i um, think so i think so and eventually the american influence the american factor of all of this is going to come into play uh that yeah, book about true. southern baptists and zionism is, yeah that is seems interesting pretty too. interesting it's, yeah like how I have a chance to read it all southern baptists like convention like in 1948 like they didn't like vote to like c- congratulate like the uh harry, harry truman, truman like on the establishment of israel yeah like they that's like very weird and that but, one figure, that American evangelical figure, who was like a, a hardcore, very extreme uh, Zionist. Uh, I don't know if I have his name written down here. He wanted to send the telegram, but he yeah. was also like, he was like ferociously anti cat J. Frank Norris, is that him? Yes, uh, J. Frank yeah. Norris, exactly. Yeah. Um, who really cut his teeth. He was actually the first regular radio preacher, like regularly wow. on the radio in the United States. So Sus Radio strikes again. Uh, yeah. carrying this man's rant. He was very anti-Catholic for many years until, and, and very, like, pro-restoration. Like, But then I think he he may have actually met with the Pope uh, around the, the kind of the dawn of the Cold War, and then he decided that Bolshevism was the ultimate menace and that, like, Catholics, you know, were <laughs> kind of, like, okay, like, provisionally okay, because uh, yeah. everyone needed to unite against the commies. Uh, so that that was also, like, one of the 
bit most like full throated backers. Uh, a guy who also uh, shot and killed a man and was acquitted <laughs> in self defense. Uh, nice. He was actually like the aide to a Catholic politician that he like railed against all the time, and like it's very sus. <laughs> he probably murdered this guy. Yeah. Um, but but then there's other strains of it, obviously, that were not initially supportive, and that that's a whole inter- interesting thing to unpack. Like how yeah. did the American kind of Protestant, particularly evangelical movement, sort of end up much more recently than you might think, becoming so like ferociously pro-Zionist when it used to be a little more uh, complex, right? Yeah, there's definitely some, we didn't really talk about this angle of it, but even in the 19th century stuff, there's like, you know, like Mark Twain being a psycho, like, you know, uh, racist against Arabs, et cetera. But oh really? Oh yeah, wow. yeah. Uh, maybe we'll bummer. see. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Disappointing. Yeah, yeah, maybe we'll we'll touch on some of that. But uh, for now, I think we'll, yeah, we'll pause there for place. now. We covered a fair amount. You know, I think we did. We yeah, did yeah, friends. yeah. I think this is all valuable context to think about. Yeah. In the jihad will rage on. Yeah, and apparently so will the subliminal crusade. <laughs> but we're yeah, gonna try yeah. to expose it as best yeah. as best we can. But until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace.